a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome. Hey, if you're just uh, dipping your toe in the pool to test out what it feels like to engage in wrong think, I hope you find it a satisfying experience. I know I do. I'm very happy to uh, welcome a special guest. This this comes back to an uh, I get the the Foundation for Economic Education uh, emails each day in my inbox, and a recent article by Peter Jacobson really caught my eye because it's a question I've had on my mind a number of times, and that is, you know, how does the free market handle monopoly? That's one of the protests I've heard about the free market. Well, how do you stop somebody from taking control? So let me introduce Peter Jacobson, who, uh, Peter, I know uh, in addition to being a regular contributor to the Foundation for Economic Education's online work, tell us just a little bit about your background in economics. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, Brian. I really appreciate it. Uh, You know, love what you do here. Um, In terms of backgrounds, I took my first economics course when I was a high schooler. So that would have been like over a decade ago now uh, and really fell in love with uh, microeconomics and like analyzing uh, exchange and sort of the institutions where exchange happens. And so continued into college, went to college at Southeast Missouri State uh, to get my undergrad degree and always had planned on going to grad school and getting a PhD because I want to teach economics. Uh, and so I went to George Mason University for my graduate degree. And now I work over at uh, the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University in Ottawa, Kansas, and doing what I dreamed of doing, teaching economics to students as well as, uh, you know, online through fee and other outlets. So, Well, the reason I have you aboard today on the show is I'd, I would love for you to teach me and my audience <laughs> a little bit about uh, monopoly and the free market. Uh, I know that there are people who don't really trust the free market because they say, well, if there's not some kind of control, you know, somebody's going to take take charge of it. They're going to take advantage. In other words, they're going to have a monopoly and then they're just going to basically shake us all down to our bones. So um, this stems from a question that you were actually asked by someone else uh, regarding monopolies and and free markets. Maybe I'll have you set the stage and then let's let's go about defining some terms and talk about how does the free market handle a monopoly? Absolutely. So yeah, I got my question. Uh, I do a segment with Fee called Ask an Economist where people will email me questions to pjacobson at fee.org. And that's J-C-O-B-S-E-N if any listeners have any questions. Uh, I get a lot, but this one caught my eye, uh, which is someone asked, without antitrust laws, and those are basically anti-monopoly laws, how would the free market uh, keep monopolies from forming? If other companies could just buy smaller companies without creating innovation, how could progress happen? And so I got this email and I figured it's one that kind of needs to be addressed because like you mentioned, this is one of the key critiques of uh, free market economies is that monopolies will kind of take over. And uh, even though maybe people will admit competition is a good thing, they'll say, well, free markets won't lead to competition. They'll lead to monopoly or something like that. Okay. So um, let's, let's define some terms here as far as when we talk about a monopoly, just so we're, we're all on the same page, what, what, What's the the most useful definition for this discussion? 
Yeah, so uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of going to bring up two uh, because there's a way that economists talk about monopoly and then there is a way that we would kind of have to talk about monopoly if we were interested in uh, legislation and things like that. So the standard like textbook definition of monopoly, there's usually like five different qualifications in a single sentence. And so I won't use like the, the full definition with all the qualifications, but generally people talk about monopoly as like a firm or market structure that's characterized by having like a single seller of a particular product for which there's no close substitutes. Uh, and that's generally the idea that economists have. Now, the problem with this definition, and I had an undergraduate professor point this out to me pretty quickly. He even had me, he didn't, uh, wasn't teaching my class, but he said, open your textbook, what's your definition? Uh, and I read it to him and he's like, close substitutes, what is that? And you think about that for a little while and it does become kind of tough. I mean, what goods out there do we consume in the day to day for which we have absolutely no substitutes for? There's not actually very much, right? Um, and so this definition of monopoly, it's kind of ambiguous because, you know, to what extent is one thing a substitute for another? You know, Armin Alshin is a, a great economist who I admire a lot. Uh, and he has some sort of comment along the lines of, well, every good is a substitute for every other good to some extent, uh, which is true. You know, sometimes instead of going to the movies, uh, you know, you'll uh, just hang out with friends. Right. Uh, and, you know, instead of getting uh, eating an apple, you'll eat pretzels. And, you know, this goes all the way down. Uh, so uh, another sort of like definition of a monopoly is someone who is a significant enough player. And this even would be kind of a stretch to call this monopoly, but it, it's it gets to a similar idea. Someone who's a significant enough player to affect the prices in their industry might be another uh, definition that people have of at least a firm with market power. So if you have really strong competition, uh, you might not be able to drive prices up by lowering your amount of production because all your competitors will swoop in and, you know, be willing to undercut you. But if there's monopoly, maybe you can kind of push the needle a little bit. Okay, great explanations. Um, how about free market? I just want to make sure when people hear the term free market, what exactly are we referring to? Are we talking no government uh, intervention, regulation whatsoever? Or is or, are there other definitions that would fit that include what some would say is a reasonable amount of, of oversight? Yeah, so I, I certainly wouldn't use the term no regulation because there's a lot of confusions associated with that. Uh, so a free market is regulated, and the primary way the free market's regulated is by consumers uh, and other companies. And so competition, in a sense, does regulate the free market. So free markets aren't unregulated. Now, there is an extent to which uh, the government is not allowed to interfere with the free market and it still be called a free market. And so once government has started doing things like making decisions about companies' uh, use of things like their capital goods, the goods that they own, once the government starts interfering in that way, uh, we lose what it means to be a free market. But I would still generally categorize the American economy as a uh, free market uh, relatively. You know, it's not perfectly free, of course, uh, but I would say it's more free market than it is, for example, socialist or something like that. Uh, even if, you know, maybe the trend isn't that way, uh, we still aren't uh, maybe over over the hump of re reclassification or something like that. Well, I really appreciate the the clarification that, you know, the most important regulation of that market comes from the consumers. That's the beauty of it, because everything they do, they can do voluntarily. You know, it's not like you could you walk into a store and, you know, somebody is going to point a gun at you and say, no, you are buying a pair of pants today and they're going to be this color. You have the option of saying, I just don't you don't have anything that I like or anything that I need. I'll take my business somewhere else. 
So, yeah, it, it's it's that and uh, you don't need other voters to agree with you when you make these decisions, right? You don't need to convince a majority. Uh, if you ever in your life have said, I'm not going to shop there again or I'm not going to buy this product again, uh, you have casted an effective vote. You have affected the profit of a company uh, whose actions you didn't like. And so that it's a really effective form of regulation, whereas uh, things like voting may be uh, more difficult to regulate with. Talk to me about monopoly in the sense of when, when certain industries or businesses um, partner up with government, and, and particularly I'm thinking in terms of they, they cooperate with government to create barriers to entry that would prevent any kind of meaningful competition from uh, getting a shot of entering the market. Yeah, definitely. So one of the biggest like uh, kind of misunderstandings, I think, or, or failures to appreciate uh, the truth of things is when people say, well, because there's a monopoly, therefore we need regulation. And there, one of the issues with the argument is it assumes the regulatory agencies are actually interested in the well-being of the voter, the consumer, whatever that is. And frankly, uh, we don't assume that about companies. Uh, we assume that companies, if they can make more profit and take more consumer surplus away, we basically assume that they will in economics because they're self-interested. Uh, the same assumption should be made of government agents. There's no reason why we would expect politicians are going to be altruistic or, you know, angelic towards uh, their voters. If you can get a majority of the votes, uh, then it doesn't matter what, what you do past that. And so uh, when I think of regulation, what I think tends to happen, and there's lots of economists who have researched this, I think of things like regulatory capture. Uh, this is an idea in what's called public choice economics, which is just economics that evaluates the government and its incentives uh, and the incentives of government agents. There, there's an idea that those people most suited to regulate are the people who are inside industry. And so when politicians go out and tr try to solicit experts to regulate, they're soliciting from companies who are in the industry. And these are going to be companies who maybe are helpful to the particular politician. You can create a good relationship, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, you know, often intentionally, but maybe even sometimes unintentionally, this relationship creates an opportunity for the companies and for politicians who like the companies to create regulations that are beneficial to them. Whenever I think of this concept, I think of Mark Zuckerberg voluntarily uh, going to the House and testifying before uh, Congress about what regulations we need on social media, as if Mark Zuckerberg creating those regulations won't help Facebook rather than, you know, his competitors. Oh, beautiful explanation. Let's tap the brakes here because we're coming up on a commercial break. But again, I'm talking with Peter Jacobson, and we're talking about how the free market handles monopoly. So um, for my listeners, this is a chance to get just a little bit better grounded in economics. We have a professor of economics to, to help walk us through this. And um, if it's a lexicon that you're not familiar with, guess what? There's this thing, it's called a dictionary, and it will help you, <laughs> and it's helping me to, uh, to get my mind around these concepts even as we speak. So we'll take a very quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Peter Jacobson. He has a wonderful article, which you'll find linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's uh, from Fee Online, and it's about how the uh, free market handles monopoly. And Peter, uh, coming back into this, um, I think the free market itself is, is not especially well understood. There's a point that you make in your article 
that uh, even though I I feel like I know a fair amount about the free market, it just reinforces that wow. I don't know if I would if I would describe it to people as a process, but but it most definitely is. Help us understand how it's a process rather than an event that happens. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, a mistake that's often made when talking about you know fixing the free market is uh, people kind of assume the free market is a result or a snapshot in time, and so we have uh, you know one single seller dominating today. Therefore, one single seller is going to dominate. But really, the market is not just something that sits there and exists. It's actually a, a, a process of exchanges, buying, selling, and innovation that occurs over time. And the biggest feature of the free market is entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship, by definition, is a change of the status quo. And, you know, economic models are good. They help us learn things about the world, but they don't capture very well this idea of entrepreneurship. And so when we use, you know, textbook definitions of monopoly and textbook economic models, to make laws, we're excluding the real uh, dynamic thing that happens over time in economies, which is innovation, entrepreneurship, disruption. Okay. Now, um, why is it that, that so many people seem to default to, well, but the only legitimate way to, to really provide oversight is through government? I guess another way of asking, why do so f- few people trust consumers, their friends, their neighbors, themselves? To, to be the ones issuing that uh, regulatory or exerting that regulatory um, force. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes from this, uh, like a honest uh, acknowledgement of the fact that there are times in our lives where certain firms dominate, right? Uh, you can look around and look at, for example, Amazon today. A lot of people worry that Amazon is becoming a monopoly. And it's not crazy to think that, uh, you know, they're able to distribute and sell a lot of products better than anybody. But if you step back and you think about the whole timeline rather than what's just happened sort of in our, our recent, you know, uh, past few years here, you realize that things are a lot less solid for Amazon than they might appear. Because before Amazon, we had uh, Walmart. Walmart was sort of the giant of retail. If you needed something, you went to Walmart. And that's still somewhat true, but it's certainly less true with Amazon. Before Walmart was Sears. Uh, you know, if you talk to anybody who lived through sort of like the era of the 50s to 70s, the, you know, Sears is the giant that rose up and kind of took over the world and everybody thought Sears would be there forever. Uh, now you go to like a Sears store or Sears Grand, if if there's anyone near you, uh, they're basically empty. Uh, and this is an acknowledgement of the fact that over t- a long enough period of time, uh, you know, these big powerful firms are toppled by uh, other businesses and ultimately consumers who want things from other businesses. So I think people thinking about just today often causes them to seek out regulation rather than thinking about sort of the long history of our economy. One of the aspects of the question that was asked to you that, that prompted this column that you wrote was, uh, so what can we do to prevent, you know, bigger um, players from coming in and just, you know, basically eating up the smaller ones like a shark? Yeah, this is uh, another kind of criticism is that even if companies could innovate, we could imagine bigger players coming in and trying to buy up companies who are innovating and kind of stifle uh, disruption that way. But uh, there's a few problems with this. The first is that just in recent history, uh, you can look pretty you know, far and wide, especially in the tech industry. You see smaller players deny buyouts because they're convinced, and rightly so in most of the cases, that they're going to kind of blow out the bigger competition and actually become uh, more profitable than the bigger competition. And so there's no amount of money that the bigger competition can offer them 
uh, to give up on their company because they believe it. Facebook is a pretty famous example of this. Is Zuckerberg was offered buyouts here and there, and he refused every time because he really believed in his product. And you know, uh, rightly so, he, he was correct. He he shouldn't have uh, sold at those times. He has a lot more money now because of that. Um, and so that's one argument against this buyout argument. The other argument is this: uh, actually, in capitalism, too big is bad. When you get very large as a company. Uh, you have to start making a lot of decisions by committee. And if you've ever been in a very large corporation before, this has happened to you where you've sort of had this like paralysis by analysis, uh, you know, 500 meetings to make a decision uh, situation. This, and this doesn't happen in small businesses. Small businesses have a lot more fiat. The owners make decisions. The people in the positions make the decisions. And as you get larger and larger, those bureaucracies become more and more necessary. And the more you have those bureaucracies, the less you're making decisions based on things like profit and loss, and the more you're making decisions by committee. And that ultimately makes companies uh, unprofitable. In fact, this is pretty closely related to uh, Ludwig von Mises' famous argument against the economic system of socialism, that when you centrally plan everything, you lose access to the economic knowledge about prices, profit, and loss uh, that is necessary to make correct decisions. Okay. Um, talk to me about antitrust. I know that, uh, you know, for a lot of folks, antitrust is just, well, that's something government does. I don't really understand it. But at its heart, it sounds like antitrust, as you mentioned in your article, is uh, that's the state's attempt to use government enforcement to end monopolies. I'm curious, uh, as you look around today, um, there there are plenty of places where people are calling for the government to step in and, and, you know, take care of this. This company's too big, too powerful. What are the ones that you feel are most noteworthy of, of watching in terms of antitrust action right now at the federal level? Yeah, so you're starting to see some movement by government agencies uh, against, for example, Elon Musk. Uh, this is one of the big recent ones. After the purchase of Twitter, you're starting to see that Musk is personally being investigated as someone who's maybe like trying to use a social media platform, for example, to, to create market power or something like that. Uh, to me, this is a very important one because, uh, you know, I, I'm not like a huge Musk guy in, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I've never been sort of like this Musk aficionado, like follow everything he does sort of thing. I kind of like gasoline cars. I'm not really totally bought in on the, the electric car thing. But what I find kind of disturbing is Musk is very clearly sort of an enemy of the status quo right now. And to see him being pursued by people claiming that they're worried about market power I don't really buy this. You know, uh, I, I I see this as sort of like a, a political witch hunt to a certain extent. I mean, in what sense is Tesla or Twitter even a monopoly? In what sense do you feel like you have to go to those products to, to get something? And if you don't go there, you, you're out of luck. It's like, uh, well, I don't know hardly anybody who has a Tesla. I'm from the Midwest. That probably influences me a little bit, but it's certainly not, not a monopoly. And uh, we just saw a bunch of people exit Twitter when Elon Musk uh, w was created as, or was uh, dubbed the, the owner of Twitter. And so there's just no reasonable sense in which Elon Musk is actually creating a monopoly. What it makes me wonder about is uh, are politicians and bureaucrats doing what I talked about earlier, which is kind of forwarding their own political interest through the guise of uh, trying to take down monopoly. So me, So to me, the most interesting cases of antitrust right now are happening in big tech because I see this as a lot of politically motivated antitrust. Okay, we've got about a minute left here, but uh, you make a pretty good case in your article that monopoly isn't necessarily a bad thing. There, there may actually be good examples of monopoly. Maybe could could you provide us with one? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the example that I put in the article is, I think of, and this is from my undergraduate professor, because I asked him this after class, he went, finished going through Monopoly, and I said, well, we talked about the downsides. Are there upsides? And he said, absolutely. You know, think of computer operating systems. That's uh, my favorite example. Most people don't like to switch between Mac and Windows. Like most people like one operating system, don't like the other. They're bothered if they have to use the other. I'm that way. I don't like that the Mac mouse has like one button. I like the right clicking. I like my two buttons. I may, Maybe this is like a minor complaint or whatever. <laughs> but the point is, imagine now that we had like 100 or 200 operating systems that people were using, you know, like a bunch of companies making alternate alternative operating systems. And you had a different one at work, at school, you know, at the library library, uh, any environments that you're going to encounter a computer, you have to relearn an operating system. This would be really annoying. And it's not the end of the world again, but the point is there might be some companies or some industries rather where people just prefer there to be fewer choices uh, because there's sort of like a, a merit sometimes to having uh, more limited choices. And, you know, maybe some people who are interested can go off and do Linux or whatever. Uh, but uh, that's one example. Okay. Peter Jacobson, thank you so much. I, I, I'm grateful for your article. Thank you for taking the time to come and visit with me and with my listeners, and we should do this again. Yeah, Brian, I'd love to. Thank you again for having me. All right, again, that's Peter Jacobson. He teaches economics and holds the position of Gwartney Professor of Economics. I'll have a link to his article in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Welcome back, I should say. I've got a, a special guest joining me and a really fascinating topic that, uh, that we're going to be touching on. I'd like to welcome Gregory T. Angelo. He is with the New Tolerance Campaign. And uh, Gregory, first of all, great to have you on the show. If you wouldn't mind, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do. And then let's talk about this, this amazing work that you're a part of. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for the endorsement of the work that we're doing at the New Tolerance Campaign right off the top of your show. Greatly, greatly appreciated. But, you know, to give your listeners some background on me, uh, I, I live in Washington, D.C. I live in the proverbial swamp. Came here 10 years ago uh, in January of 2013 to head the national organization Log Cabin Republicans. Uh, some of your listeners might know that that is the nationwide organization representing gay Republicans in the United States. And I, I really enjoyed my time there. I was the organization's uh, chief executive and was really at the tip of the spear, pushing back on the notion that all gay people must be Democrats or all gay people uh, are targets of conservatives and are not welcome in the Republican Party. Well, I was a living, breathing example that that was not the case and was proud to lead our uh, thousands of members across the country who were making that same case to their local communities. Left there uh, in 2019, went to work on Capitol Hill for a terrific congressman. He's now retired, Pete Olson from Texas. He represented the area just outside of Houston, for your listeners who might be uh, familiar with that region. And then in 2020, uh, I got a message from uh, the, the presidential personnel office at the White House asking if I would be interested in a press secretary position at the Office of National Drug Control Policy. This is the, the drug czar, President Trump's drug czar, Jim Carroll, worked with him, shining a, a spotlight on all the tremendous work that the Trump administration did combating the opioid crisis, keeping fentanyl out of communities, closing the border, and connecting people who are struggling with addiction with care. 
So, uh, you know, I, I say I've, I've really had a perspective from all angles of, of Washington, D.C., the executive branch, Capitol Hill, and being a, a, a lobbyist at the head of a, a national organization. Um, so I bring all of that perspective to my work. And after I separated from the White House in January of 2021, the current opportunity uh, that I'm in right now, heading the New Tolerance Campaign, is something that appealed deeply to me. And uh, and, and here we are uh, several years later, and I'm, I'm heading the work that we're doing rallying grassroots around the country to push back on phony tolerance. Yeah, talk to us about the, the New Tolerance Campaign. Uh, what is its genesis? The New Tolerance Campaign exists to push back on hypocritical institutions that have gotten us into the current cultural quagmire that we're in. Okay, like conservatives regularly bemoan cancel culture, wokeism, critical race theory, critical gender theory, all of that stuff, and rightfully so. But, Brian, those are symptoms of a greater problem. The real disease here is the institutions in our country that have been so corrupted that they have allowed cancel culture and wokeism to even become a thing. Here, and here. when I talk about inst institutions, I'm talking about woke corporations that are wading into contentious cultural issues that do not impact their bottom line at all. I'm talking about activist nonprofits that started with a noble mission, but have completely lost their way and are basically now just carrying water for the DNC. I'm looking at you, ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center. And, and then, of course, the, you know, I call them the, the OGs of hypocritical institutions. That's <laughs> colleges and universities in our country who for more than half a century have been indoctrinating uh, and pushing ever leftward uh, our future uh, generations of leaders. Now, what makes the work that we do at New Tolerance Campaign unique in this movement is that we take the traditional call your senator, email your congressman model, and we turn the turrets on the heads of those institutions. So everyday Americans in all 50 states are able through the New Tolerance Campaign, specifically our website and our social media presence, to send messages directly to the deans of colleges and universities when they for example, de-charter the school's Turning Point USA chapter or disinvite a conservative speaker to, to speak on campus. We've engaged in campaigns where people around the country are able to send messages directly to the CEO and executives at Walmart after they mandated critical race theory training for their employees. And we've regularly engaged in campaigns pushing back against the ACLU and the SPLC, uh, given their ever leftward drift. But the thing is, we are allowing people to lend their voice to this movement. You know, people will read articles about cancel, who, who got canceled today? People will get fired up about that. They'll get angry about that. They'll read an, an op-ed in the National Review or see someone on, on Sean Hannity's show and, and, and get worked up and bemoan the current state of affairs. But then what do you do with that anger? How do you channel it? And the New Tolerance Campaign allows people to do just that. So to date, we've rallied over 60,000 Americans in all 50 states to take action. We've gotten, we've gotten, our work has gotten results. We've gotten people reinstated on Twitter. We've forced uh, corporations to back down on the policies that they've mandated for, uh, for their employees. And, and we continue to grow. Uh, so, you know, we are, we are a growing movement and um, people can visit our website, newtolerance.org to find out more. Okay, I will include a link to your website in the show notes for this episode, um, and I hope people will check this out. Look, I, I not only is this long overdue uh, in terms of someone who is willing to stand or an organization willing to stand up, but uh, Gregory, I, the fact that you're doing this and the way you're doing it 
is in a way that's calculated not to bring more anger or more conflict to the table, I think is really admirable. And I think that that's the better approach. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people kind of want to, you know, knee jerk and well, now I'm mad and argh, there's got to be an outlet for it. Um, I think this is a much more productive way to do it. And you, you actually list several different, uh, different areas, different places of success where, where you've been active. Would you mind sharing with us maybe one of the, the examples of where the, where this, this new tolerance has, has come into play and, and borne fruit? Yes, as, as I mentioned, the, the Walmart campaign that we had where um, we partnered with Christopher Rufo. Uh, a number of your listeners are likely familiar with him. Christopher Rufo is really at the tip of the spear when it comes to exposing uh, things like critical race theory, critical gender theory, especially when it takes place uh, at private corporations. And he writes these um, you know, scathing exposés that will appear in the City Journal or in the New York Post. And then he kind of moves on to his next target. I connected with him and his team about a year and a half ago and offered our grassroots network to then allow people who read his exposés to take action. And he and his team love the idea. So what happened then is that uh, when, when Chris Rufo launched a campaign exposing mandated critical race theory trainings for Walmart employees, the New Tolerance campaign was able to jump into action just one hour later and allow Christopher Rufo's tens of thousands of followers on social media to channel the anger and the frustration that they had after, after reading his article. We generated, uh, I think at this point, we're over well over uh, seven or maybe even 10,000 messages have been, have been sent to Walmart. That campaign is still active, by the way. Your, your listeners wow. can visit our website and lend, lend their name. But USA Today caught wind of this, uh, asked Walmart about uh, the, the, the work that we did at New Tolerance Campaign, that Christopher Rufo did and others have. And Walmart said, well, we don't agree with every slide on every PowerPoint presentation, nor do we agree with every view that every trainer we bring in uh, uh, shares with our employees. Um, and they said something along the lines of they'll reconsider in the future um, you know, the perspectives that they, they bring to their employees. Brian, that's as close as you're going to get to an apology from a corporation as large as Walmart. You know, oh, yeah. I don't know that they're that that they're going to bend the knee and say, "Yes, the new tolerance campaign and everyday Americans forced us to change ways." But you know what? We did, and the the way that it's most telling that that was a victory, uh, and that is that the same individuals who were exposing within what was happening within Walmart uh, have not come forward with any further uh, stories about Walmart persisting in those types of, you know, very, very exclusionary uh, critical race theory training. So we've gotten responses from Walmart, uh, certainly some, some others out there, as I mentioned, you know, Twitter, we've helped to get people reinstated on Twitter. Uh, we're working uh, right now with a, with a doctor in Texas who is uh, under threat of losing her license because she dared to treat unvaccinated COVID patients. Wow. Um, you know, I, I point this out to say that um, you know, we are often standing up for the little guy at the New Tolerance campaign. Okay, like everyone is likely familiar with the current fracas around J.K. Rowling, all right? The, mm -hmm. the woman who wrote all the Harry Potter books, uh, who had the audacity to say that there are biological differences between men and women. And so there's all these movements to boycott Harry Potter, don't go see the movies, don't, don't buy the video game, uh, don't, uh, don't share the books or read them with uh, the next generation of young readers. 
okay, you know, people can do all of that. And I joke, J.K. Rowling is not going to have any trouble paying her rent next month. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. She's almost untouchable. Um, but you know what? What happened to a, a woman like Carolyn, who worked for an independent game company, and on a Twitch stream, I guess this is you know people can live stream when they're playing video games. Uh, she was asked by a commenter if she was excited for the upcoming Harry Potter game, and she said, "Yes." Hold that thought. I want to come back to yeah, this just yeah, the yeah. other side of our commercial sure. break. We'll be back yeah. right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. We are talking with Gregory T. Angelo. He is with the New Tolerance Campaign. And uh, Gregory, as we were going to break, you were mentioning um, a, a gamer was asked if she was excited about uh, the new Harry Potter, uh, something that was coming out, and apparently it, it sparked, dare I say, intolerance, <laughs> according to her answer. You got it. You, you know where this was going, despite the cliffhanger we left uh, at be before the commercial break. Uh, yes, uh, people went through her Twitter account and found a tweet that she put out years before she even worked at her in her current employment, where she said she was concerned that biological men would take advantage of pro-transgender laws in order to sexually harass women. That's, that's, that's a valid concern. Uh, but for, for supporting Harry Potter, for being excited about the upcoming Harry Potter game, and for not being, uh, or for being transphobic, she lost her job at Limited Run Games. She was terminated. Wow. Now, you know, she, she's been, you know, v very nice about this. And she says, I wish them no ill will. Um, I'm moving on. I don't think this is the right place for me. But she at least deserves an apology. And I'm glad to say that people can go to our website. And we've had hundreds of messages sent to her former employer, Limited Run Games, letting them know that that was the wrong move. Like, here's the thing. The heads of Limited Run Games thought they were doing the right thing by terminating an employee who said she was excited about a Harry Potter game and just expressed some concern over transgender legislation. They thought that was that was the tolerant thing to do. Well, they're finding out that that's not the case. And Brian, if I can, was just one other thing. You know, you, you talked about the fact that you're welcoming the uh, more positive aspect that we bring at New Tolerance Campaign. We're not always pushing back on intolerance and phony tolerance in the United States. We do positive campaigns that thank institutions when they do the right thing. You know, two that I can immediately point out, the Women's Tennis Association, which cut all business to China after one of their stars, Peng Shui, uh, was basically disappeared in that country for speaking out against the CCP. Um, and then Penguin Books, uh, which was under a tremendous pressure campaign from the left to cancel Amy Coney Barrett's book deal and Penguin dug their heels in and stood firm. So, you know, it's, it's, I think in many ways, just as important for the heads of institutions to be commended when they do the right thing and support genuine tolerance as they do to, to, be the, to bear the brunt of aggressive pressure campaigns when they uphold phony tolerance. No, I, I agree and I applaud that kind of positive feedback. Now, Gregory, I have to ask, how did our institutions, particularly our, our corporations, um, among other things, how did they become so thoroughly captured by um, by those who are so intent on forcing, you know, a a pretty intolerant worldview on us? Yeah. 
Well, I, I have a theory here. You know, when I talked in the previous segment about colleges and universities being the quote unquote OGs of hypocritical tolerance, uh, I, I meant it. I mean, you know, this is more than half a century that colleges and universities have had basically brainwashing and indoctrinating uh, the people who are leaders today. And I think those in the conservative movement, we, we took our eyes off the ball. Um, I, I think we rather glibly uh, and frequently made the assertion, uh, you know, what's that, that apocryphal quote from Winston Churchill? Uh, if you're not liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. But <laughs> if you're not conservative when you get older, you don't have a brain. Like, right. we, I think we all figured, well, once these crazy kids start paying taxes and once they settle down and have a family and, and see how the real world operates, then they'll come over to our side. There's no way they're going to keep perpetuating this craziness. You know, I, we I were think, wrong. We I, were wrong. <laughs> I think those was, are now the CEOs and the executive directors of these institutions. And and normally you would think there were some areas, I mean, okay, in the social sciences, you know, in the in the colleges and universities, I would expect to see more of, of this kind of effort. But uh, hey, at least STEM, you know, math and science and technology, those are going to be off limits. But no, just yesterday I, I saw an article that um, numerous institutions of higher learning are requiring, I guess it's called a diversity statement from those who wish to be students. Yes. You know, if you want to be an engineer, well, we need to see your diversity statement and, and see if it, if it squares with what we expect of, of our students. And that just, it seems coercive. Yeah. What was that Eric Erickson quote? You will be made to care. Mm. You know, basically <laughs> you, you, the only way you can get an education at this school is if you say the thing that we require you to say, whether or not you believe it. And once we accept you into this school, this is the, the line of speech that you need to always observe, or you will be excommunicated. You'll be expelled from the school. You could lose your job. Um, you, there will be real consequences that the woke mob uh, will, will press on you. Uh, and and that's, you know, that's why we have you know, cancel culture today. Well, I... I know that there are a lot of people who think, well, I'm just going to quietly sit this out and I won't draw attention to myself and, and I'll be just fine. Um, I don't think that's a viable strategy, though. It, this is the kind no. of thing that, that can't be ignored into uh, oblivion. Well, you know, here's the difference. And again, I'll go back to the work we do at NTC Rallying Grassroots. Um, you know, w what does it matter if one individual sends a tweet to Limited Run Game saying you shouldn't have fired this girl? for being excited about Harry Potter and expressing concern about transgender laws. Um, you know, probably not, not a lot. Uh, what are, but what are 10 people going to do? What are 20 people going to accomplish? What are hundreds of people going to accomplish? And so, you know, what we do at new tolerance campaign is we allow people to join their voices together. You know, you're not alone. You can be sitting at, sitting at home on your laptop or on your phone, engaging in a campaign, but you do so knowing that there are tens of thousands of other people out there, who are also engaging on those campaigns, who are also just as fed up with woke mobs and cancel culture as you are. And so collectively, that's what grassroots is all about, collectively by giving people around the country a vehicle with which they can push back, we will eventually achieve that, that swinging of the pendulum back to a place of greater neutrality in our institutions. Well, if, if we could just as a society rediscover that concept of acceptance without conformity, um, it would it would go a long way, but uh, I think one of the things that holds us up is people feel very isolated. They feel alone. So where you're where you're building a gathering place where people who who feel the same, think the same, or at least you don't know, want to stand for the same uh, rights for others to to be able to speak and think freely, um, that's got to be pretty liberating. 
to to know you're you're not alone and you're you're not on the outside, regardless of what to you know the the cancel culture mob outside the window might be chanting. Yeah, and and by the way, you know I I self identify as a conservative, and I also have a record to back that up. But New Tolerance Campaign, we are not a partisan organization, and one of the heartening things that I've seen, as frustrating as it can be opening up your computer in the morning and seeing the latest person to be um, the target of the cancel culture mob. What's encouraging to me is seeing people coming to New Tolerance Campaign who are politically unaffiliated and even people who are Democrats. I'm actually seeing a lot of percolation among Democratic mothers in particular who are very concerned about radical gender ideology being pressed upon their their third, fourth, fifth grade children. Um, so yeah, I, I think that more and more people are, are waking up to what is happening. And, you know, the more we can, the more the New Tolerance Campaign can show people that this is not partisan and we can actually achieve uh, real change in, in our institutions together, I think the more appealing we are. Gregory, how can people, how can my listeners get, get involved? Very easy. Uh, if you want to get involved in a campaign, you can, you can do it right now. You can go to newtolerance.org. Right on our homepage are our uh, most recent three campaigns, but you can go to the tab at the top, all campaigns, and see if you want to lend your voice to any of the other uh, concurrent campaigns that we're doing, pushing back against institutions. On Twitter, we are at new underscore tolerance, and then just search for us on Facebook, New Tolerance Campaign. You can't miss us. Okay. And and I suppose there there are probably some volunteer opportunities, too, for, for people who really want to get involved. I, I imagine this is going to strike the right note with a lot of folks. Um, do, do you have room for volunteers? Is, is there, are there ways people can donate either time or money to, to help further what you're doing? Yeah, we welcome both. So if any of your listeners would like to uh, move into aiding the, the New Tolerance Campaign, either financially or, or with their time, their time or their treasure, we'd welcome welcome that. There's also a confidential whistleblower form that we have on our website, where if you are someone who notices phony tolerance or hypocrisy at your office or at your child's uh, place of education, you can send us a message. You can also, you can call or you can send us a message through our website. We'll treat it completely confidential. We've gotten a couple of these uh, to date. And, you know, if you want to blow the whistle, but you want the new tolerance campaign to do the heavy lifting, you can go to our website and do that as well. Okay, we've got about 30 seconds here, Gregory. For, for the sake of people wondering, well, what exactly do we mean by tolerance? Give me your best off-the-cuff definition. What is authentic tolerance like? Our institutions, first and foremost, are neutral. They're not wading into issues that they have no business wading into. When we achieve that, we actually achieve true tolerance where we are able to hear one another out. And you know, I would just say, as a conservative, I think that in the marketplace of ideas, all things being equal... It's the conservative ideas that that ultimately win the day. Okay. We're talking with Gregory T. Angelo. He is uh, president of the uh, New Tolerance Campaign. I've got a link in my show notes that you can check it out for yourself. Gregory, great to visit with you. And again, kudos on the work you're doing. Thank you, Brian. Always happy to come back to you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.